Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. Developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Briggins International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefeller. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every Thursday, we take a bite-sized look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of our international guests. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Many of us thinking of modern European history began in post-World War II terms after Europe was left in ruins and in desperate need of capital, infrastructure, and hope. The Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, hosted by the United States, provided a framework through which Europe could rebuild itself and its economy, and it fundamentally changed the global world order. Over the next several decades, with France and Germany at the helm, the European Integration Plan began with the establishment of the European Community and its new institutions comprised of the European Commission a council of ministers, a parliamentary assembly, and a court of justice. Economic integration increased by doing away with tariffs and providing for the free flow of goods and people within the European community. Greater political, foreign policy, citizenship, and security integration followed in the 1990s with the establishment of the European Union. The 2002 introduction of the euro, along with the addition of many Eastern European countries in the 2000s, brought the total number of EU countries to 25 in 2004, and added economic and political complexities to Europe. Romania, Bulgaria, and Croatia rounded out the number to 28, which is where we are today. Europe was particularly hit hard by the fallout from the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, dramatically increasing the flow of immigrants seeking refuge from conflicts in the Middle East and Northern Africa regions. The post-9-11 conflicts created the European migrant crisis that flooded Europe with millions of additional people requiring significant care, training, and integration burdening European government resources and stretching tax coffers. Recently, the divide between the economically healthier northern EU countries and the less healthy southern EU countries intensified to the point where UK voters decided to leave the EU. Brexit is currently underway, and COVID-19 has continued to decimate populations, especially in Italy and Spain. In this turbulent era, what does the future hold for the EU and the rest of Europe? Today, we are joined by Shannon Brandau. Shannon is an American attorney and international politics and law specialist who helps businesses, policymakers, and ordinary individuals make sense of complex issues around the globe. Hunkered down in Leuven, Belgium, just outside Brussels, she is currently trying to maintain order and sanity after six weeks of lockdown by sectioning her two-bedroom flat, which she shares with her husband, an energetic terrier and two cats, into designated no-entry zones. Check out her latest posts on COVID-19 recovery efforts in the EU and China on LinkedIn. Shannon, thank you for being with us here today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be on your show. Shannon, welcome to our show. Before we get going in earnest, could you please tell us how you ended up in Europe in the first place? 
Um, it's, it's an interesting story. I never intended to be here. <laughs> um, I've always been passionate about international affairs. That was my major at university where I focused on Chinese politics. And I actually spent time in Hong Kong and Taiwan studying uh, Chinese uh, language and Chinese affairs um, when I was much younger. Um, I returned to the States and then I uh, decided to go into uh, uh, law. I applied to law school uh, in 2005 and I took every international law course, including uh, courses on the European Union and courses on international commercial arbitration, every course that was offered. There were a lot of courses. Um, I went to the University of Miami. I graduated in 2008, right at the time when the bottom fell out of the legal market. My intention had been to, to, to find some area of international law, you know, to practice in, but uh, I quickly discovered that that was not going to be possible. So I uh, did sort of an about face uh, and on the recommendation of one of my professors, um, I uh, took a class on uh, bankruptcy law and I became a uh, U.S. bankruptcy attorney <laughs> where I uh, defended uh, individuals and small businesses um, in court in their bankruptcy cases um, for about five years. I, uh, I, the 2008 financial crisis was, was quite harsh. And... Um, I was very, you know, young and, and uh, very um, gung-ho and um, uh, very excited and eager to, to, to work with my clients, but uh, I saw a lot of really difficult uh, things in that period. Um, it was not a, I think you probably remember, it was not a very nice, um, uh, a nice time for anybody. I, I, I sort of burned out. And I, I just kind of hit a wall with that. And I took time off and uh, I tried to reconnect with what I, I originally wanted to do. Um, and in that time, I decided that it was either then or never I was going to make a change to, to actually uh, pursue what I had originally wanted to pursue, which was um, the study of international law, international business, international politics at a, at a, uh, a deeper, on a deep, on a deeper level. So, um, about 10 years after I graduated law school, I applied for an LLM in Uni European business law at, uh, Catholic university here in, in Leuven, uh, Belgium. It's, uh, one of it, I guess it is Belgium's top research university. It's excellent, excellent institution. Uh, I think uh, that all of its graduate programs are in uh, English. It's extremely international student friendly. The, the, the entire town of Leuven is just, uh, I mean, English is essentially the language spoken. You, you, it, it's really remarkable. So um, I finished that degree uh, in 2019 and I decided to stay because I enjoyed um, Belgium uh, a lot. And I, I adore European Union law and politics and uh, the complexities that, that come with uh, um, 
uh, European affairs. So I, I don't know. I I I, uh, I found that to be quite an intriguing and so I'm still here and <laughs> I don't know when I will return home um, my parents keep asking obviously I'm not gonna be going home anytime soon under the, uh, in the present situation um, because borders are closed and I think Americans can get home at this point but um, uh, you would have to I would have to quarantine myself so um, but I'm staying here and I'm pretty, my husband and I are pretty, um, happy here and we feel pretty secure and safe. The Belgian government has done, uh, a lot, uh, in terms of keeping everybody safe. So, uh, uh, we don't feel like we're in danger really, um, and are quite happy to be here at the moment. I think I got Brexit fatigue last year trying to track everything. Can you give us an update on where Brexit is and what the European uh, kind of sentiment is about uh, the UK leaving the EU. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that a lot of people have have completely forgotten about Brexit um, at this at this time. Yes, it was all in the news, and we were all fatigued by it. But Brexit is still on as of today. <laughs> um, Downing Street has said that it will stick to its original timetable. Despite the fact that Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, and Michel Barnier, the two top negotiators on the Brexit deal, so Prime Minister Boris Johnson out of the UK and, and uh, the EU chief negotiator Michel Barnier, both are recovering from the coronavirus. Um, the UK formally left the European Union on the 31st of January. We are still in a transition period that's leading up to the 31st of December. Um, and during that time, UK is still an EU member. Um, Britain's government says that an EU-UK trade deal must be in place by the last day of the year. Um, but even if it's not, uh, Downing Street has said that it will not prolong uh, a transition period beyond that December 31st, um, 2020 timeline. The idea behind the transition period, though, was to minimize disruption caused to the business and travel um, um, between the UK and the EU. So now the implications are with COVID-19, um, no one seems to know how a um, a deal between Brex uh, the UK and the EU can be worked out to, to minimize any kind of disruption in, 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 those, in those areas. The EU has said that negotiations could be extended by a year or two. I mean, they've, not officially, but they've seemed open to the idea and maybe off record, I think they've said that. Um, but apparently at this point, it's um, the UK that's in the driver's seat and Boris Johnson seems to think that his timetable um, is is um, the one that he wants to pursue. Well, I, we don't know. Um, the status is that currently there's no change in anything. The UK, again, remains a member of the EU. It has the same government, although a different prime minister. Um, its laws are still EU laws for the time being. And, and, and um, 
but the real question is, is what will change once, once negotiations do take effect. And that is a very complicated question. It's complicated because the UK's exit requires enormous change to its laws and regulations that were previously put in place as part of EU law. Many UK laws were required to be adopted to ensure harmonization of the laws um, with other EU member states. And so one of the challenges to wholesale revocation or, or this wild, you know, um, repealing or pullback in law is that the EU is still a very, very important trading partner for the UK. And things like data protection laws um, in the UK will need to align, be aligned with EU data protection laws. Um, that's just one example in order for the UK, for UK based businesses to operate within the EU. So none of the changes are going to be immediate. The scale of the issues that need to be considered um, is just so huge that it's going to take many years for review and debate and a solution to be found. And of course, everything hinges on the negotiations that haven't even taken place yet. Um, what you could say, though, uh, you know, businesses are trying to to make um, arrangements. They know that this is going forward, and so they're they're trying to um, figure out their next steps. And um, what we have been seeing is a number of companies establishing subsidiary offices. The, the companies, for example, that might have been in only the UK, whether they were UK companies and they had business in the in the EU, or whether they were American companies, for example, that had business in the EU, they began to move to the to and it's, maybe they kept their offices in the UK, but they established subsidiary offices in in uh, an EU member state in places like the Netherlands um, and Germany and, and in France. Um, the Netherlands seems to be a favorite spot. It's actively pursuing uh, a lot of that business. And, uh, it, you know, everyone, in, well, not everyone, but most people in the Netherlands do speak English. And their business laws aren't too far removed uh, from the UK business um, um, model. So I think it's an easy place for, for businesses to, to find themselves in. Um, but I would, I would argue you could even come to Belgium. You could come to Flanders because, uh, where I am, Flanders is, is a, it's a, it's an, it's a Dutch speaking place, but a lot of people or most people speak English and, uh, are very entrepreneurial, very, um, much like the Dutch. Um, and we have a major port in Belgium and we have, um, the EU headquarters in Brussels and we are strategically located right in the center between France, Germany, and the Netherlands. So that's, that could be one option for, for businesses. Um, but again, in terms of exactly what will change um, as it relates to any kind of, you know, law, um, trade law, supply, supply chains, anything like that, it just hasn't been decided yet. You know, Shannon, last year, in the in the happy pre-coronavirus days, um, as part of their annual St. Patrick's Day rollout, you know where 
the Irish government sends its entire cabinet uh, overseas to engage with um, both Irish communities overseas and and, and uh, countries around the world. Generally, the I, I went to, to such an event in Seattle, and and Brexit was was at the center of the agenda, and the um, the minister who was present there, and I forget what his um, specific portfolio was, but. I, I, I went away with the distinct impression that although at some level he lamented the, the, the fact that the UK would, would soon be uh, out of the union, that there was definitely a, a certain feeling of, of um, excitement that, that he uh, manifested, you know, as he talked about the opportunities that Brexit might present to, to Ireland as the only remaining um native English-speaking country and, and the only common law jurisdiction to, to remain in the Union. That aside, right, I think it's it's um, obvious that up until now, the UK has provided a key link between the US and, and the European Union. Um, obviously, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a country that, well, you know, enjoys a special relationship with the US. Uh, um, so, so it, it really can, can, can claim, well, at least when, when it was still in the European Union, right, or, or as long as it is in the European Union, it can, it can claim to be in, in, in both clubs, right, and, and provide that key link. But with the UK out of the EU and, and not able to, to really exercise that role, what will the US-EU relationship begin to, to look like? Um, and, and perhaps you could talk... Um, among other things, about what that will mean in terms of, of trade. Um, we hear, of course, a lot about the, the U.S.-China trade war. But one thing that um, impacts me when I go to conferences and talk to uh, other international trade practitioners is how much the language being used uh, by the administration with regards to Europe is beginning to resemble the language used when talking about China at least uh, in, in when it comes to trade. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on, on the future of uh, US-EU relations. Yes, I think you make an absolutely um, great point. Um, so I guess I'd start with the latest developments in EU-US relations. Uh, and on an informal level, I would start with by describing the amazing efforts that are happening here uh, in uh, on behalf of the uh, American business community. So we've got um, a number of companies that are pitching in to, to help out um, with the COVID-19 crisis. Um, on the EU level, uh, you may have seen in the news that Netflix and YouTube um, have reduced its, their streaming quality in Europe for at least a month, and uh, they're going to re-review that decision at the end to, pre to prevent the internet from just collapsing under the strain of, of unprecedented use um, that uh, uh, is occurring uh, during the coronavirus pandemic. Amazon uh, did the same thing here that it did in the States. It prioritized shipments of household staples and medical products um, and temporarily halted intake of other goods um, until April the 5th. And then I think they are back to shipping on demand now. 
So on the at the EU level, this is all across the EU, these companies and others, these were just a few of the examples um, that I, I had time to talk about, um, but they're all pitching in to, to do what they can. Um, and at the national level, in each member state, American companies are um, are contributing. So in the case of Belgium, I just attended a, um, a virtual online, you know, a, a webinar um, that was sponsored by the American Chamber of Commerce in Belgium. And uh, um, they were spreading the message about uh, American business um, and uh, how American business is, is helping uh, connect um, different companies with um, the needs of, of hospitals uh, and the healthcare um, sector here. For example, Kearney, which is an American uh, you know, global management consulting firm, brought companies together to make and distribute face masks and alcoholic gel to local hospitals. And they provided support to raise capacity for producers of PPE. Um, Exxon, which is in Antwerp, um, is a very large employer and important to the local economy here. Uh, Exxon focused on keeping its facilities and supplies running, and it made um, um, good use of its um, Baton Rouge chemical plant, which is home to the world's largest um, isopropyl alcohol production unit, which produces millions of gallons, gallons of stuff, uh, of that stuff, you know, each year. It in Belgium, Exxon donated 6,000 liters of that to um, local hospitals, and it also donated money to Belgium's biggest research universities to help them with research um, against COVID-19, um, or on COVID-19, excuse me. My favorite example is um, Belgium EY. Er Ernest Young uh, in Belgium sponsored two successful COVID-19 hackathon events, one in Belgium and the other at the EU level, um, in order to brainstorm and, and develop projects to problem solve things like, you know, lo the logistics of mass testing for COVID-19 or how to combine uh, artificial intelligence with crowdsourcing in, the, in medical and clinical R&D new approaches to PPE development, software for home testing platforms and educational apps for students in lockdowns and projects to get businesses up and running again. Um, in Belgium, the hackathon gathered 600 solution hackers and it yielded at least 30 viable projects just in Belgium uh, alone. At the EU level, um, it amassed 20,000 hackers and yielded some 2,000 projects to sort of help us figure out how to beat this. Um, volunteers from uh, EY in Belgium worked weekends to mentor and provide communications and platforms to make all these events possible. I mean, it was all on a volunteer basis. They worked, you know, uh, overtime. So I was really proud as an American to see things like that happening. But that's the informal level, right? That's the informal um, um, response um, to, to EU relations. Um, officially, transatlantic ties have not been faring so well. Um, trade barriers seem to be the number one reason why. Um, divergent national responses 
to the latest crisis have brought new sources of, of tension and complaint. Um, and in the face of medical supply shortages, uh, the U.S. and Europe have both turned inward, um, where Washington ordered three, it ordered the 3M company to halt its exports for a, time, for a little while, and then Europe responded by doing the same. And then, of course, the you know President Trump made a um, unilateral transatlantic travel ban that that sparked the anger among uh, sparked anger among European leaders. Trade barriers are damaging um, the alliances that the U.S. has here with individual member states as well. And I think I mentioned before that other countries like Russia and China are beginning to exploit, uh, well, they've, they've been exploiting that since, since January. So some ideas that have, I've seen tossed around to try to remedy um, the, the uh, U.S. and EU relationship uh, would be to use NATO, for example, to, to stockpile shared medical supplies. Um, or maybe, uh, you know, uh, cooperate in some sort of joint global medical surveillance program to, to prevent or um, reduce the chances of, a, of another pandemic. Um, in the end, we, we should remember that we are both friends uh, and we are both in need and that uh, the trade barriers that, that we keep sticking up are preventing us from helping each other and preventing us from doing a whole lot about COVID-19. Shannon, I know that you are a China wonk and Fred and I are as well. We, we all speak Mandarin. We've all been studying China for quite a few years and keeping track on how China's interacting with uh, the greater world. Can you talk for a little bit about what China is doing. I know China is working closely with Russia. They like to sow discord, as you mentioned, and uh, they're trying to get a win. You know, allies in any country in the world, it uh, doesn't matter where it is, right? Any any country that will get, uh, China can get to lean in its direction and away from the U.S. Is, is a victory for China. So can you talk a little bit about what China is doing in the EU and how its actions are perceived there? Well, interestingly, when I first got here, so I, I came, you know, for my graduate program um, and I learned so much about the EU and I learned so much about the EU's policy towards Russia, which was still developing. And China never came up. <laughs> and I kept thinking to myself, why is China not an issue? There's, there is the same problem, you know, the EU has the same problem with China that it does with Russia. And I guess it's just, they have a longer history of acknowledging um, the difficulties that Russia presents and maybe a, a shorter one with China. I'm not sure what the explanation is for that, but I was really taken aback that, that a lot of my, you know, a lot of the articles that I read, a lot of the research, uh, a lot of the foreign policy um, information out there on, on EU um, external relations didn't have um, much to do with China. And it really surprised me. Um, but a lot of that is, is beginning to change, especially with this, with the COVID-19 crisis. Um, China lately has been 
heavily criticized here for both its disinformation campaign and going around Brussels in attempts to weaken the EU and support member states separately with, um, for example, a, a mask diplomacy um, where it's just donating, you know, it steps in wherever it sees that the EU is not stepping in, it steps in and fills the gap uh, with free masks and other supplies um, for country hospital countries' hospitals. Um, those efforts were working for a little while, um, but the reason that most European governments were um, happy with what China was, was giving them is because um, it, they weren't receiving communication um, with from the EU on on how the EU had, was was working to support them as well, and that's been changing also. The EU is in an early stages of developing a coherent strategy um, as a block towards China and and Russia, where it really had none before. One of its major developments um, is a new foreign direct investment screening regulation, which is similar to the U.S.'s, um, I may be saying this wrong, but I think it said CFIUS, um, passed in February 2019, entered into force in April 11, 2019. And a subsequent e, uh, European Commission communication that gives guidance on how to screen investors to protect member state industries. Um, the commission came out with this communication to identify an increased risk of attempts by non-EU acquirers to obtain control over suppliers of essential products, and in particular, the healthcare sector products. Um, for the most part, this communication uh, was a direct response to Chinese takeovers, um, or at least fears of Chinese takeovers throughout the EU. They, the commission was pressured by Germany, it was pressured by the UK, it was pressured by um, Netherlands and even France to respond um, in, in, in a stronger way than it had before to, to safeguard uh, European companies. And so what they did was um, they decided to lighten up a little bit on competition law. Uh, in terms of the rules for state aid. So they're going to allow um, member states to help, um, if not produce European champions, um, at least keep their companies from becoming Chinese champions, um, so to speak. So that's what's been happening here. Um, there has been a lot of effort to, it was a rushed effort, but it was a lot of effort to protect um, uh, European businesses uh, and industry uh, on the ground. Uh, but then you had what was just reported in the New York Times where the commission censored its own reports at China's request to remove objective and accurate facts on disinformation by its government. Um, so the strategy is evolving and it's not always um, clear and uh, coherent, but at least it's there where I really didn't see a strong one before.
Shannon, this has been a very interesting conversation, and I think we will need to have you back on to talk about Hong Kong and China, which obviously are topics that everyone here um, enjoys. Before we let you go, I'd like to ask you, what have you been reading, watching, or listening to lately? Well, <laughs> I, um, I've i sort of put my books away. I'm obsessed with trying to figure out how we're, we're going to get out of the mess that we're currently in with our um, lockdowns and, and the coronavirus pandemic. So I've, I didn't consume the news at, at uh, as much before this as I, as I do now. I'm, I'm tied to the news or at least articles and research um, all the time. The things I'm following right now um, for example, are, I, I've been watching very closely the coverage of the Washington Post uh, reports on the State Department's release of cables warning about lab safety in Wuhan. Uh, those cables haven't been released yet, as far as I know, and uh, the Washington Post is suing under the Freedom of Information Act to get them released. Um, and they're being, even though they've requested expedited processing, um, the State Department's holding on to them and saying, oh, they're not that urgent. You don't need them. So I'm kind of waiting on that. This past Tuesday, Senator Murphy uh, out of Connecticut and Senator Markey out of Massachusetts sent a letter to the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, requesting information about the two cables. Um, that was reported also in the, in the Washington Post. They specifically asked about the actions that were taken in regards to the warning. For me, I'm watching this closely, not because I do or don't um, agree with uh, the, the theory of, the, of a lab accident in, in Rohan. I, I don't. I don't know. I'm like everyone else. I wasn't there. I don't know what to think. But I would like to see those cables. Um, because I believe they have huge implications, um, not only for China, but also for the U.S. and, and science uh, at those P4 labs. Um, so that's fascinating to me. I'm following that very closely. Another thing I'm doing is I'm getting really, really great links um, on the latest COVID-19 scientific research uh, from Quora, of all places. They've got an excellent coronavirus um, thread where researchers um, like Mitchell Tsai, uh, who is a former virus researcher at Harvard, um, shares articles and, and updates on on. And he decide, he helps us understand, you know, he puts it in lay terms if we can't understand the, the, the actual research. Um, so that's been extraordinarily um, enlightening and, and it's exciting to see how fast the science is moving uh, and, and this global effort. It's extremely moving to see how this global effort at trying to, to come up with a vaccine um, as quickly as possible. And on that note, I'm, I'm, of course, following the development of the, the Oxford vaccine. Uh, there's a story about it in the New York Times. Uh, it's a remarkable story of, of how the, the researchers at Oxford actually had a head start accidentally because they uh, were already testing a vaccine for another coronavirus, the MERS, M-E-R-S virus, uh, right when COVID-19 started. So they already had infrastructure in place. They already had um, volunteers and willing participants. They had already tested um, 
a vaccine for MERS on humans and and had determined that it was safe. So they've got a huge jump, uh, a, a, a huge advantage on on the other teams that are competing uh, for uh, for the vaccine. They believe uh, that they can have a vaccine as early as September, but you know, no guarantees there. China has said that it believes it will have a vaccine as early as September. So uh, I don't know. I, I'm I'm watching that. I think everyone's, of course, hinging their hopes on the vaccine, um, and we all have to remember that you know there are some things that you just can't get a vaccine for, and it, it's not a 100% sure thing. But everyone's working really really hard on it, and so it's very inspiring and very moving. Um, and and I think we're all pretty hopeful that it's it's going to come through. Jonathan, what about you? What are you reading? I think the, the thing I enjoyed most this last little while was uh, an Atlantic article. It's this month's Atlantic article from H.R. McMaster. And he gives a really a lucid summary of, of uh, U.S. government, military. You know, I, I think people who are in the know about China and very much watching China, uh, a lucid background for um the title of the article is how China sees the world and how we should see China. And, uh, I always like to check my, uh, my understanding uh, and my guts against uh, those who are, uh, have access to a little more information than I do, uh, and, and get, uh, you know, get grounded again in history as to how China understands the world and, and how we should understand what China's doing right now. And that it's been, uh, it was a great read, not, not too long, but a, a very well-written, um, very lucid article. What about you, Fred? So in keeping with the theme of rediscovering books um, that we've left behind as we move around the world, I recently picked up a book that I've owned for a long time. So it's, it's not a, a, a current book, but the topic is, is nonetheless very relevant. The name of the book is Treasure Islands, Tax Havens, and the Men Who Stole the World by Nicholas Shaxon, S-H-A-X-S-O-N. And it's basically about the offshore industry. I had a brief stint myself working in, in that industry. So a lot of what is described there really resonates with, with what I observed in, in that industry. But the author really does a, a wonderful job of, of explaining uh, how this uh very corrupt parallel world operates and, and why it matters. So highly recommend that book. I know that there's other books on the subject that have, have come out since. Um, and of course there is um, that uh, Netflix uh, movie, uh, the name of which escapes me at the moment, but it's a topic that is uh, being picked up um, more these days. But this, this book is, is uh, one of the, the first works to, to, to really, come out uh, about the topic. So encourage everyone to, to, to take a look. Uh, Treasure Islands. Shannon, thank you for being with us today on our podcast. It's been fascinating to get your viewpoint. Uh, you're extremely well-read, uh, well-spoken, and, and we look forward to talking more with you, especially about China as we, uh, as we look ahead and, and checking in again on EU matters as well. So thanks for being with us, and uh, we look forward to tracking your work. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me to your show. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. 
We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue to discuss developments in global law and business. And tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Thank you.